Welcome to episode 46 of the Distracted Driving Podcast. This one is called We Have to Let Ourselves Off the Hook Sometimes, which is good advice, I think. It's a a phrase and some advice that comes up towards the beginning of our conversation here as we get into discussing briefly uh, our own academic progress as students, me, Stephanie, and, uh, and Jim. Uh, we, we were not always the best of students in all of our uh, subjects, and so that's why James says we have to let ourselves off the hook sometimes. We're going to get into some of his uh, apparently controversial positions that uh, may have led to his rather tumultuous exit uh, from USC. And we will end this conversation, uh, first of all, kind of uh, explaining what led to him writing the letter. If you didn't catch the previous episode, I, I make mention of the letter that uh, that Jim wrote entitled, um, Why I'll Never Be Allowed to Teach at USC Again. I will uh, link to it in the show notes on our website, distracteddrivingpodcast.com. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to let you enjoy episode 46, We Have to Let Ourselves Off the Hook Sometimes, with guest host, Stephanie Van Ash. Um, So you, okay, your intent uh, initially then was, you you came to this conclusion that, all right, I'm I'm taking, I'm I'm re-diverting money um, to do things that aren't having the impact that I wanted, so it sounds like you... You kind of felt like it was not a good in a, a good use of those funds. You make the decision that you know what I can retire, so I'm going to. But your original decision, I believe, was you're going to retire but continue to accept part-time uh, uh, lecturing and, and teaching assignments until you were told that uh, no, I'm sorry, those those offers no longer exist which led you to write this letter called Why I'll Never Be Allowed to Teach at USC Again. Um, so so now, now your, your plan, which was, I, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but your, your plan was, okay, you're retired, but you're going to continue teaching uh, at USC as and when, you know, as your, your schedule allows. They've taken that away from you. Um, but, but you, in exchange, I guess, retain the emeritus title. Um, so if I've got all of that correct, then what is your, what, what's, what's next? How, how are you going to make a bigger impact given the current circumstance? All right. Well, I'd say one of my goals in retirement was to affiliate with a think tank not necessarily in a remunerated position, but um, it's nice to have some institutional credibility, right? And there are a lot of think tanks out there whose work I like, and I've done funded work for the Reason Foundation before, and I might work with them. I I like the work the Independent Institute does, and I like the work Heritage does, and Cato, and um, a long list of thoughtful places full of people that I'd like to to be shoulder to shoulder with, uh, focusing on the same kinds of questions. So that's still in play, and that's, that, that hasn't been withheld from me. Whether or not that happens for me depends on um, what I publish and how effective I am um, talking to these various groups about 
uh, whether and how we might work together. And that, I don't think USC's decision has a great deal to do with that. Um, I was open to teaching. Um, the best part of the job has been the students. I don't, I don't mean to deprecate the rest of the job. It's just true that for me, the best part has been the students. And um, I, they've been, you know, the, frankly, the most important relationships in my life outside my family have been with the students I've gotten to know and work with. So um, the prospect of teaching, continuing to teach, had some default appeal to me. And there are specific classes where I think uh, we do some good. I like teaching statistics, because, um, especially to social science students, because they often organize their affairs to avoid as much math as possible. And yet they need uh, <laughs> tools for rationality and decision. And um, statistics, we've, it, it took me a long time to get good at teaching statistics to people who don't like math. But after a couple of decades of practice, I, I did, in fact, get reasonably good at it. And I like doing it. And I really feel that I've imparted um, to them some tools that will serve them and the others that they do business with in any capacity. Um, I like teaching economics. Um, now, the economists might not call what I teach economics, but I, I would often teach engineering economy, which has a smattering of economics in it. It's really, those courses really tend to be about making decisions where the number of alternatives right. is countable, right? right? There are other courses where the number of alternatives is massively large, and that requires a different approach. But when you can really count the set of alternatives, it makes sense to compare them carefully in a standard framework and, you know, just... Uh, the basic sorts of tools that um, Sean and I were trained into when we were students. So uh, that has a lot of payoff too. I like teaching those sorts of courses. I'm not afraid to admit that economics was the only class that I got a D in in my entire life. <laughs> That's because you, know, you did not have that, James as your teacher. Bless you. You're kind. Um, you know, I'm willing to bet that, that that D was a growth experience for you. Um, I did once get a C in Production Systems II, taught by Bob Carlson at Stanford University. Not that I'm bitter in any way, um, or it stayed with me. <laughs> but um, it... Uh, Even though he knows you know, his name, you gotta, kinda he gotta knows let the professor's address, phone number, social <laughs> security number. <laughs> It's all true. Um, it was it was a growth experience because um, we have to let ourselves off the hook sometimes. You know, we're all responsible, scholarly, thoughtful people who work hard and pay attention when we're in the classroom, regardless of which side of the lectern we're on. But if you're a student and you go to graduate school, you're going to take hundreds of exams during the course of that academic career. And even if you're prepared for all of them, and they're all well class. well constructed, right? Understood. Um, I'm just it's a, a thought experiment, right? Um, <laughs> the binomial probability of screwing up none of them is pretty small, right? Even if there's a 99% chance that you're going to do well on every one, the binomial likelihood of screwing up. 
at least one is hundreds of times greater than the probability of screwing up none of them. So um, if a, a class heads south, you got to step back, be objective about it, and just let yourself off the hook, right? If you've, if you've done your share of the job, um, and life is like that in general. There are circumstances where you're going to apply yourself and it's not going to go the way you want, and it behooves you to understand why that happened. But once you do, that part of the job is over, right? You take the lesson and you apply it elsewhere. So forgive yourself for that D. I forgave myself for that C, um, even though it still embarrasses the daylights out of me. I love your story there. You know, it, it just makes me think about how um, college is like some of the beauty of college besides the fun social stuff is that it's really a place where students go to struggle, to grow, to, I mean, like really struggle. Like I came out of so many organic chemistry tests just sobbing because I felt like I got beat up by the test. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it helped form and teach me how to learn how to take failure how to find and weave my way around through things that I'm good at and how do I do things that I'm not good at and really grapple with uh, disappointment. I mean, that's, that's exactly what I tell students today because I, I, I share with them in our first class session an actual scan of my report card when I was a, uh, I think a first or second <laughs> year at Cal Poly studying electrical engineering and my GPA was a 1.77 because it turns out that I am not very good at electrical engineering. But I learned a hell of a lot well, about um, so many other things. I'm, I, I'm confident. Um, Stephanie, you outperformed me in Orgo. Orgo's, or, Orgo clarified whether or not I was going to go into medicine. I'm, I'm, I didn't. Um, the world comes in two flavors organic chemistry people and physical chemistry people. Uh, physical chemistry has got thermodynamics in it, so you can get your head around it. Um, orgo, they're just tar makers from what I can tell. So um, I wish them well, but it's um, <laughs> if you slogged your way through that sequence, you're, you're a, a better scholar, more focused, more disciplined than I am. Good work. And now I've oh, gotten completely kind. off the subject. Thank you. You said teaching. <laughs> I planned on teaching. Yes, um, this conversation has established how much we all like the classroom. When things are going well, how much fun it is. So it's perfectly logical yeah. that I would want to retain that dimension of the job that I like so much. And um, both the School of Engineering and the School of Public Policy made offers to have me continue to teach some of the classes I was teaching. In engineering, it had been the, the senior capstone course, which is a different course than most students are used to. And it's a, it's a sequence. It's a year long. There's an external client. The projects are real. And it's, it's as much fun as you can have standing up, frankly, um, to teach a class like that. So I was hoping to, to get back to that at some point. I didn't say yes initially when the offer was made to me because I didn't want to teach full time. Um, and I said yes to the stats class that the public policy school had offered. Um, so you retire, um, there's a cohort of people who are retiring. You've known them a long time because you're all about the same age. They're all colleagues of yours. So you're in touch constantly. And emeritus status is, um, an honorific status. It's not, uh, something that's given by default. There is a vetting step involved, but it's meant to position the faculty member for a continued association with the institution. So you can be recalled to service. 
So it's, it's possible to be retired faculty without being emeritus. Um, but it's, if, you, if you aren't offered emeritus status, it's kind of like getting a general discharge from the armed services. Right? You're, it's communicating a kind of deficiency. And uh, I was you know, emailing my cohort back and forth, and people were saying, I've got my emeritus status, and you know, it's on to the next step, and everybody's in a good mood because there's this transition in their life occurring. Um, and mine didn't come. It didn't come, and I was kind of curious. But, you know, organizations are big, complicated places, and it takes a little bit of time. And I, was, I had an appointment spanning schools, so there's a, a little bit of additional complication there. I wasn't really too worried about it. And then um, out of the blue in the summer of 2022, uh, the school public policy contacted me and said, we've decided to recruit a teacher who can make a longer-term commitment to the students. And I, this was odd because they had never asked me what level of commitment I was prepared to make to the students. And I would have been right. open to really what, whatever they wanted to do, frankly. Um, so I thought, all right, this and the, the delay in the emeritus status are somehow connected because uh, uh, this communication clue. Came, yeah, this clue came to me from a very a fairly high level. The, the uh, information was conveyed to me in a kind of non-standard way, which made me suspect that it had been a non-standard decision. And so the nice thing, the, the best thing about treating people well over the years is they will respond to you if you ask them a question and especially if you're retiring and answering the question presents less risk so I had some staff contacts in the university and I asked them what was up and they took me aside and explained to me what had happened and there was this protracted discussion um, at surprisingly high levels within the organization about whether or not I would have emeritus status um, and there were there had been some events that I summarized in the letter that Sean referred to. Um, there had been a protest demonstration that had come about because I uh, was never happy with the Obama administration's uh, 2011 letter concerning their, their dear colleague letter concerning Title IX. Um, I thought that it had been a, a very it had produced some very perverse results. Um, it um, created a circumstance where a lot of well, people, both, both genders, but men primarily, were being accused of sexual misconduct and were being expelled from their institutions based on a rather flimsy process and a rather flimsy set of findings. Um, there have been 250 plus cases of universities, of, of students who have been expelled from their institutions, who sued their institutions on the basis of the quality of the process and prevailed in court. Um, so that letter uh, prompted the creation of an internal apparatus that didn't work very well and wasn't serving the interests of the students or the institution, frankly. And so I, I was critical of this and vocal about this. And this led to a protest demonstration by uh, some students who were very fond of that letter and um, the I guess the objectives, I, they may have misunderstood that I was not, I didn't disagree with their objectives. We all ought to be um, uh, safe from um, predatory actions by other people in our lives. Um, and there's a role for institutions in trying to promote that outcome. 
but my concern was with the process and the quality of the outcomes that it was producing, which were poor. And that produced this protest demonstration. And um, that might have figured into the central administration's concerns as they were discussing what my continued relationship might be with them, if any. Um, and the riots that occurred in 2020 following the murder of George Floyd, um, you know, that was an unsettling time for everybody. But I was unhappy in, I'm here in Los Angeles. Um, it wasn't quite the 1992 riots in terms of violence and property destruction. Uh, but it was, it was not far off the mark, frankly. Um, and I didn't like the public policy responses to the, dis to the disorder that was taking place. So um, I am a big fan of the rule of law. Uh, government has an enormous job to do. That job includes setting the rules of the road, enforcing contracts. We can't expect that to be done privately. That's in government's bailiwick. And we weren't, we weren't doing it. We weren't responding appropriately to the, the civil unrest that was taking place. And there was a vast amount of property damage. Um, you, if you don't enforce contracts, you can't have exchange. Markets can't operate. The benefits of trade are withheld from everyone, producers and consumers both. And that deserved more attention than it was getting from the left and the right and from universities. Um, and I tried to draw attention to that aspect of this, which was at odds with the university's contention that systemic racism was the, the root of all of these evils and that that's where, the, that's where the focus of the institution should go. We had to root out systemic racism despite the fact that um, in you know, the 35 years I worked for USC, I've known one sexist on the faculty and zero racists. I've, I have ne never detected anybody making, any faculty member making decisions about his or her work that was predicated on an assumption about the race of the people they were working with. I did have a colleague who thought women did not belong in his discipline, but he eventually figured out that he was wrong. He figured out how the world was organized and um, he mended his ways and that was resolved. So um, it's hard to understand the central administration's focus on systemic racism when we bend over backwards to avoid racist behaviors. And talking about this really upset the central administration. So um, I, that, that might have figured into their decision that, you know, maybe we need a little bit less Jim Moore in our lives. Um, but in the end, um, I, I did receive emeritus status. And it was not because of the uh, senior leadership uh, in the academic dimension. It was because of the general counsel. The general counsel said, look, you know, um, you, you're really violating your own standards of conduct here and the, your professed values if you do this. And that will create liability for you. If what you are really concerned about is you don't want him in the classroom, um, don't let him teach. There's no particular reason not to offer him this status. And so, um, you know, I, I understand from my staff contacts that word went down to um, the School of Public Policy that I was not to teach and to the School of Engineering that I was not to teach. And um, 
those opportunities were withdrawn, you know, and they're they're entitled to make the the decisions that they think are best for their organization. Yeah. Um, that that's at their it's, discretion it's their job. to choose who is is going to teach, right? Um, right. I I, I want to go back to something you said though a moment ago. Uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, you know, you said well, they came to the conclusion that maybe we need a little less Jim Moore. I think that's ironic because Moore is literally in your name. So I, I would disagree with them. I think we need more of Jim Moore. Um, but, you know, you said uh, when, when talking about the, the Title IX stuff, and I think this, this also um, probably persists through some of the other uh, – the other um, – issues that came up, you said there was a common objective, but the disagreement was on the process. And I think that's really at the heart of so much of our, our political and social disagreement today. Um, if, if you can get people to just calm down a minute and actually talk about the specifics of what we agree and disagree on, the objectives, in my experience, are often uh, the same or, or pretty close to it, but we just disagree on method. And that conversation is, of course, um, a big part of being able to, to get to that realization, which brings me to a question. So um, academic freedom, you mentioned that in your letter. Um, you talk about tenure. In fact, you have a line where you said... Uh, Oh, gosh, uh, something to the effect of what good is tenure if, um, if I can't talk about this stuff. I'm paraphrasing. So is, is tenure dead? Um, I, I've, by the way, I've been very critical of that in my own, um, mostly in my academic career as a student, because I was the recipient of many instructors that I thought should not be so. <laughs> they, they, the unintended consequence of tenure is that you end up with people that maybe aren't very good at their job, but they get to stay, which I don't think was the objective of, of tenure. But here's an example of where, uh, yeah, it was supposed to protect you. And as you said in your letter, you could have stayed, but you would have just been on the sidelines. Um, so, so where are we with, with tenure? What are your feelings on it now that you've gone through this? And there you have another cliffhanger. That is the end of episode 46. And uh, boy, uh, I'll just reiterate that the unintended consequence of tenure is something that I have struggled with for a long time. I never understood tenure from the time that I, uh, I first encountered it. I could probably do a whole podcast on the university professors that should not be based on my experience with their uh, their teaching. But uh, you will get to hear uh, James Moore's thoughts on tenure in episode 47, which is coming up, depending on when you're listening to this, either right now or next week when it gets released. Thank you for uh, listening and watching. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Emeritus Professor James Moore and enjoying the guest hosting from my business partner, Stephanie Van Ash. And I will mention very briefly right now that Steph and I do have a new company. It is called Lead Out Loud. We offer leadership development workshops really intended and engineered for engineers. 
These are workshops for people that are great at engineering that want to be better leaders, more confident leaders, more effective leaders. So you can check that out and find out more information about Lead Out Loud at lolworkshop.com. You can also go to distracteddrivingpodcast.com to leave any comments you have on this or other episodes. And as usual, thanks so much for supporting the show. We'll catch you on the next episode.